Welcome to the Semper Reformata podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. And before we start, a word of caution. Look, there's things I'm going to say tonight and over the next three weeks that you're not going to agree with, okay? Let's get that out right away. Um, So we might as well make it absolutely clear. You're entitled to disagree with me. You're not entitled to disagree with me on fundamental matters of the faith. But you're entitled to disagree with me when it comes to minor things and non-essential things, what we call adiaphora, stuff that's non-essentials. I'm going to take a course here that goes against most of the commentaries, the evangelical commentaries on the history of Paul at this point. And if you say to me on the way out through the door, I don't agree with a word you said, I'm going to say, well, that's all right. Just don't fall out with me. See, I like Paul, don't you? I like Paul a lot. I've been reading the book of Acts now intensively for the past two years. And I really like Paul. But I want to be absolutely clear, Paul is not Jesus. Paul is not our saviour. Paul is not the one who came into the world and died on the cross for us. And remember that when we deal with the person of Christ in the scriptures, we're dealing with God's perfect, spotless, sinless son. We're talking about the saviour of the world. The one who perfectly fulfilled the law in every respect. The one Peter could say about when he wrote, Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps, who did no sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth. Now look, we can never say that about Paul. No matter how much we might um, no matter how much we might admire him, Paul was a sinner like us. In fact, Paul himself will say to you that he was and he said it in his time, he is the chief of sinners. He said in first Timothy one and fifteen, this is a faithful saying. And worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. So this week, and God willing, next week, we're going to look at a character flaw in Paul and ask ourselves, is he, through his own personality, deliberately disobeying God's will? Now let's be clear. How you discover the will of God for your life is often very difficult, isn't it? I'm not much into experiment, experientialism. I'm not an advocate of the pin drop method or a promise box Christianity. But when it comes to life decisions, even the very smallest ones, you will want to pray about them and you will want to seek the will of God. The verse that we finished on said, The will of the Lord be done. It always will be done. Let me illustrate that. Our brother Raymond isn't with us this evening, so I can talk about him in his absence. 
Raymond, back in the springtime, invited me to attend an anti-abortion rally in Lurgan. There's nothing special about that, you know. He invites everybody to attend those things. And he invited me, and he invited me to say a few words at it. And he'd invited me before, and I'd been unable to attend. So I agreed to go along here in this very place one Lord's Day evening. And then I regretted it. (laughs) Not that I didn't want to go, but I'm just not good in unfamiliar situations. I mean, I'm the person who went to a denominational assembly where I knew virtually everybody there in Newton Arts. And I got into the church and I looked in through the door. I was standing in the foyer, that bit I was talking about a minute ago. And I looked in through the door into the full church of people sitting. And I stood in the foyer for 15 minutes trying to persuade myself to go in before I finally gave up and went home. So after Raymond asked me to go to Lurgan, the week went by, and I became more and more apprehensive until Friday, when actively in my own mind, I was looking for good excuses not to go, and the devil gave me one. I took quite sick that evening, probably with worry. I took quite sick, and in the middle of the night, uh, I was violently ill, And a fitful night followed, and anyway, I had my excuse. I definitely couldn't go. I couldn't possibly go. The thoughts were bouncing around in my head. You know, what would I do if if something happened? You know, I'd be in the middle of the street. There'd be no sanitary facilities. I'd be embarrassed. I'd panic. The following morning, Saturday, I got up and I rose up half dead out of bed. I was dehydrated and exhausted. And quite honestly, I was going nowhere. And I sat in the study. I flopped down into the chair and I opened my Bible for a morning reason reading. And sometimes in the Bible that I have, maybe not this one, uh, there's a few things in this one too. There's wee bits of stuff in Bibles. You know how it is. Little cards and things from years ago. And I just sat down and a Bible opened and a wee card in the Bible. And there was an old sermon that I must have preached years ago. And I'd underlined some text on the page And underlined on that page that Saturday morning was one single text. It was Ezekiel 22 and 30. And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land. But I found none. God was looking for a man stand in the gap and there weren't any because they were probably all looking for excuses not to go and I'm no better and it was a hammer blow so I got up and I went to the shower and I got dressed and I drove to Lurgan and when I got there the meeting was about to start there had been somebody preaching And our good brother, Paul Flynn, who's a Reformed Presbyterian minister, stood up to preach. What did he quote, do you think? He quoted Ezekiel 22 and 30. 
God's looking for a man to stand in a gap. And I'm standing there with my head bowed saying, Sorry, Lord. Sometimes God's will doesn't need to be sought for. Sometimes it's just crystal clear, isn't it? Now let's move on to the substantive issue. I think in this, Paul was just like me. I think in this passage that we have read together, Paul was doing something like what I did that day. I think he was trying to do what he wanted instead of what God wanted. Let me show you why I think that. Paul's going to Jerusalem. And he's going to Jerusalem because he's been lifting an offering all around the Gentile churches, and he's going to support the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And he has gathered together a group of representatives from all the different churches to travel with him so that every church will know that there's proper accountability going on. But you know, that, could, that accountability could equally well be achieved if Paul had stayed at Troas. He's been journeying from the meeting with the elders at Ephesus that we saw last week. He's been journeying from that down through across the Mediterranean. The Bible even gives us his route. And he has landed, first of all, at Tyre. And he's talking to the church there. But he could simply have stayed there. He could have remained at Troas. He could have remained at Ephesus. He could have remained at Tyre. And the others could have gone on to Jerusalem and delivered the money to the poor saints at Jerusalem. But why should he not go? Well, here's why. Because God tells him in this passage three times through the Holy Spirit, that he's not to go. I want you to look at those three warnings. Why don't you go back a wee bit to Acts chapter 20 and um, to verse 22. And Paul's talking here to those Ephesian elders, and we were looking at this last week. And it says, And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. Now hold on to that verse and keep your finger on it. Paul's talking about being born bound in the Spirit. But was that a reference to the Holy Spirit or to his own rebellious spirit? In verse 22, um, the word spirit there is uh, simply in lowercase letters. But in verse 23, it's very, very different. See of that the Holy Ghost witnesseth to me. His own spirit, perhaps, compelling him to travel to Jerusalem, but the Holy Ghost warning him that in every city, He's going to be uh, put into bonds and afflictions, and that's what waits for him. Verse 22 and verse 23, a very distinct message. Paul's own spirit within him says, I'm going to Jerusalem. Nothing's going to stop me getting to Jerusalem. 
God's saying, you be careful. It's a very vague warning. But bonds and afflictions await you. Now what's Paul's response? Look at verse 24. Let's see what's happened. Paul, in his own heart, wants to go to Jerusalem. God's saying through the Holy Spirit, you be careful what you're doing. Paul's saying, none of these things move me. You see that? None of these things move me. He's got his own excuses. I don't count my loss. Look at the rest of the verse. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I may finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of grace. And it all sounds very plausible. But there's this broad warning, not too specific. There's a warning nevertheless. And Paul is responding by saying, quite literally, I'm not concerned. I don't care. I'm going. None of these things are moving me. That's a problem for every single Christian. How do I determine the will of God, especially in Christian service? So here comes our next incident. And it's in chapter 21 and verse 4. And here we read this. And finding disciples, we tarried there seven days. And these disciples, they said to Paul, through the Spirit, capital letter, our translators here, are faithfully reminding us, in this case, that God himself is speaking. Through the Spirit, listen, that he should not go up to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit is now saying to Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Paul's a tire right now, and he's enjoying a week of fellowship with the Christian believers there, people whom he hasn't met before, people who have probably been saved through the ministry of the scattered disciples after the Jerusalem persecutions. And when they spoke to Paul, remember it was apostolic days, and they spoke to Paul literally through the Spirit. The word Spirit right now has a capital letter. This is, without doubt, God's message. God speaking, the work of God speaking, the Word of God to the Holy Spirit. And there is no ambiguous language. There is no prevarication. It's as clear as daylight. Do not go to Jerusalem. You can't get much clearer than that. God is saying it directly to Paul. How will Paul respond? Again, verse 5. And when we accomplished those days, we departed. We went on our way. He's still going to Jerusalem. Even though God said, don't go. Now, to be fair, there's commentators here. The vast, I'm going to say maybe the most, the vast majority of, of evangelical commentators here who will say that these disciples were simply telling Paul what he already knew and what the Holy Spirit had previously witnessed, that there would be trouble ahead and that they were just speaking out of concern for Paul. So in other words, what they're really saying is this isn't God speaking at all. This is just us being concerned for you in the Lord. 
One commentary actually states, clearly the disciples felt prompted by the Holy Spirit to tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say that the Holy Spirit was prompting them to tell Paul. The Holy Spirit is speaking to Paul through these people with a specific message. This commentator goes on, but a question remains as to whether the Spirit was actually forbidding Paul to go or only preparing him for what he would have to suffer in Jerusalem. I think it's pretty clear. The Holy Spirit is saying to Paul at this stage, you don't go. Look down at verse 10 to see number three, the third incident. Man called Agabus. As we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost. Now here it is again God speaking. So shall the Jews of Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So Paul and the group of church representatives that are now died in Caesarea are staying at the home of Philip the Evangelist and they're meeting again with local believers and Agabus is back and we've met him before haven't we? We met him in chapter 11 and we saw that he was an accurate prophet there Uh, chapter 11 and verse 28 he signified by the spirit that there should be great throughout all the world which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar and now he turns up again he's turned up entire presumably directed there by the Holy Spirit himself and the message can't be clearer it's just that Paul's not listening so God sends Agabus along to provide him a kind of a, a visual aid a kind of a sacrament of sorts, something to point Paul clearly to something that God wants him to hear. So Agabus takes Paul's belt, this broad waistband that was used by tra- uh, tradesmen perhaps to carry tools, etc. And he, he took the belt and he bound his own hands and his own feet presumably during a sermon or a meeting, and he concludes that Paul will be similarly bound by the Jews. The message is now crystal clear. If you go to Jerusalem, you'll be taken prisoner. Now, how did Paul respond to warning number three? Look at verse 13. Chapter 21 and verse 13. When we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What do you mean? What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. I wonder, have you noticed the growing intensity of the messages? Every time God speaks to Paul through the Holy Spirit's witness about this matter of traveling to Jerusalem, 
It gets stronger from a general vague warning in chapter 20 to a direct command not to go to a vivid illustration of the consequences of the disobedience that he'll take. The warning gets clearer and clearer and clearer and still Paul ignores it and there may even be a fourth and final warning in chapter 22 and verse 17 where it says, And it came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem, even when I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance, and I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem. Paul is talking about his conversion, of course, at this stage. We'll come to that at a later time. But James Montgomery Boyce thinks it is highly likely that this verse itself is a reference to this incident, to an incident that occurred during this final visit. And if so... And Paul is, even at the last minute, being warned to flee. But that's only a possibility. I'm not building anything upon it. Now, we've got three certainties. We've got the warning at the meeting of the, with the men of Ephesus, a vague warning. We've got the incident that happened in Tyre, where the Holy Spirit directly said to Paul, do not go to Jerusalem. And we have got the incident at Caesarea where the consequences of going to Jerusalem and disobeying what the Holy Spirit has said will be were explained to Paul. Paul is not perfect. And he's not listening to what God is saying to him. And he's determined to do exactly what he wants. How can we find a clear illustration of this today? Well, there are plenty of people in God's church, in the visible church anyway, who are just doing what they want because they want to do it. They're not listening to God's word. They like doing what pleases them what pleases the flesh I wonder how many to take an extreme example I wonder how many women are standing preaching in pulpits right now or this morning pretending that God has called them to the ministry of word and sacrament in his church preaching and ruling in the visible church and doing it because they feel that they have received a call to the ministry. They haven't. No, they haven't. God's word can't be clearer than that issue. But you see, they want it. And they want it really badly. And so they mould the will of God into their own sinful desires. So that even when God says to them very clearly, this is not what you should do. Couldn't be clearer. A woman shall not preach or teach or usurp authority in God's house. And they say, I know that God said that, but I feel in my spirit that God is calling me. Now that's an extreme example. 
It's hyperbole, if you like. But that's what Paul was saying. Right back in Acts chapter 20, when he was talking to the Ephesian elders, and he was saying that his spirit was moved to go to Jerusalem, even though God was telling him not to go. Now, I don't want to finish like this. Next week, we're going to look at Paul's pragmatism. And we're going to see how he went further astray. But I want to defend him tonight because he's an apostle. And it is right to defend him. So before I finish, I want you to uh, think about four reasons that we can give. Four, if we were in a court case, four mitigations for the apostle Paul. Let's defend him for a moment. The first thing is that Paul has a doggedness in his character that makes him unflinching in his pursuit of evangelism. See, we're talking here about a man who just doesn't give up, aren't we? A man it's hard to turn. No matter how hard Paul was beaten, no matter how much he was humiliated, no matter how wickedly he was slandered, Paul never stopped preaching the gospel. And you see, it was that very determination that made him the great missionary pioneer that he was. That was why God chose him and used him. Here in Ulster, we have a word to describe people like that, haven't we? We call them Thran. Well, Paul was Thran, and that's why God used him. Because he just never gave up. He just kept on going, no matter how many times they tried to beat him. They tried to beat him back. It's that doggedness that's coming to the surface here. And we all have character flaws like that. The second reason is that God, that Paul has a great depth of love for the people of Israel. That's where he wants to go. If you read Romans chapter 9 to 11, you'll get some idea of how much Paul loved his own people, the Jews. I mean, how many of us could honestly say of our fellow countrymen, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I wish that myself were accursed from Christ. The word there for accursed is a very, very strong word. It's the word anathematized. It means I actually wish that I could be cast into hell if my brethren and my kinsmen could be saved. And many of us could say that. And yet that's how Paul expressed his love for the Jews in Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 10, he said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Paul loved the Jews. He wanted them to hear the gospel. He wanted them to hear the same message of saving grace that he had preached to the Gentiles. And he wanted to go to Jerusalem to preach it himself. The third mitigation is that Paul has a project. He loves the church. And he wants the church to be united. He wants all the Lord's people to be one. Remember that there's an agenda behind Paul's collection for the poor of Jerusalem. 
Paul saw the danger that the church would be split. He saw the growing division between Jewish and Gentile Christians. He wants to heal that rift before it goes any further. And he sees this love offering as a way to heal the rift, a way to show the Jewish Christians that the Gentiles are their brothers and their sisters in the Lord. And that's his aim. And maybe he felt that he needed to be in Jerusalem when that offering was handed over. And as we shall see in our next study next week, it was all in vain. And Paul will almost destroy the gospel work that he has done. Only God rescued him before he could do it. Our fourth mitigation. Mitigation number one. Paul's doggedness of character, his thrandness. Mitigation number two. His great love for the people of Israel. Mitigation number three. His desire to unite the church that he loves. And mitigation number four. Paul's not afraid to die for Jesus. He says that in verse 13. I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the, for the name of the Lord. He's convinced that to die for Christ is simply going to usher him into the Savior's immediate presence. For Paul, remember, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But that's beside the point right now. For Christ is not asking Paul to die for him. In fact, the opposite is the case. He's asking him to stay away. So we're not too hard on Paul. Paul is not divine. He's not perfect. He's a man. He's the chief of sinners. And that means he makes mistakes. Sometimes he gets things wrong, just like we all do. Sometimes his own personality can deflect him from what God wants him to do, just like you and me. Oh, but there's one other thing. Paul will go to Jerusalem, and he will be arrested. And even though God has warned him not to go, And even though Paul has followed his own spirit instead of the Holy Spirit, be assured that God's will will be done. There's an enigma here. The last verse that we read together, verse 14, the disciples said to Paul, the will of the Lord be done. God's will and purpose will not be thwarted. God is sovereign, and he will bring his purpose to pass. And we will see that over the next few weeks as we continue. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast.
subscribe and give it a 5 star rating. See you next time.